8 o'clock. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Parshat Contemporary Halachic Issues. We're going to deal with something a little bit different this evening, whereas we've been talking about one specific halachic um, issue over the previous weeks. Tonight, we're going to be dealing with, um, let's call it a, a principle of halacha, rather than a specific halacha. And as, uh, as the title goes, we are dealing with the law and its spirit. Uh, that it shouldn't have an apostrophe and part before anyone cor- uh, corrects me. But the idea we're going to talk is, is that within the Torah world, there is what you can and cannot do, which is what we will call the halacha, and then there's what you should and should not do. Now, the difference between should and should not is always the fact that uh, we are dealing with a, something that is uh, a meta-halacha, something that is beyond the realm of what is considered permissible or prohibited, but it's definitely within the will of uh, Hashem. Uh, that the, so when Hashem says something that you should do, but it's not mandated, so it means that if uh, certain circumstances arise, one would not have to keep it to the nth degree. You'd have to keep the basic halacha. But in certain areas, we expect that people will, uh, will, will go beyond that which is the minimal amount necessary. So... Uh, I think we, we see all of this in, in our lives, especially when, you, when you're raising kids. If you have kids who do the absolute minimal amount to be what's called Yotzi Dei Chova, to fulfill, so you say bring down their laundry, so they chuck their laundry in the laundry room. So it's not quite what you meant. You meant to put it in the, into the, the machine or to do the laundry itself, and they just brought it down. So uh, technically they did what you said, but it's not exactly the spirit of the law. So we're going to deal with this in a very obscure halachic place that is uh, no question very confronting um, to the modern year, and uh, we'd like to uh, just sort of un- peel it open a bit with uh, the, the way that Rashi understands it. So it comes literally in the opening lines of this week's parsha. So you have it over here in front of you. When you go out to war against your enemies, and Hashem gives them into your hand, and you take captives. And you see a woman of beautiful appearance in captivity. And you desire her and you want to take her to be your wife. You will bring her to your house. You will shave off her hair. And you will do her nails. Exactly what doing her nails is with the other you let the nails grow long to make her look unattractive. And she should remove her garb garment of captivity from her and she should dwell in your house and for months she should mourn her parents and afterwards you can come, on to, come to her and she will be your wife and in an event that uh, after this period of time this month you no longer desire her you should surely send her away and you should surely not sell her for money and you should not um, uh, take advantage of her because uh, says you, you had your will that you should not enslave her. It says you should not abuse her um, because you had already taken advantage of her. So you read a story like this, and this is a, a, a classic case of soldiers acting immorally on the, on the, on the battlefield, that they are completely in the, in the course of battle, that the animalistic side has taken com- complete control of them, and they take advantage of a, of a, a woman that they desire. And seemingly what the Torah is coming to do is saying, okay, you can do that, that's not a problem, but 
you need to go home, you need to shave her hair, you need to grow her nails, you need to you know keep her for a month, and then you, and you read something like that, and it sounds like very um, counterintuitive to the way that the Torah ordinarily would operate. So there are two ways that um, the rabbis sort of address this this halacha. One, um, which we're not going to deal with, is let's call it on a more mystical plane. And it's based on the fact that last week's parish we saw the people that get to go home from battle are those that, amongst other things, are scared that they might have uh, committed an avera that uh, warranted that they might die in battle. So you have people who are going out to battle are not scared because they are, quote-unquote, sin-free. And therefore you have a very lofty, very spiritual personality that's going out to war. And so for such a spiritual personality to see a woman, what it means is that he sees her, her to'ar, her appearance is not her physical appearance, but he senses that there is a, a neshama, there is a Jewish soul that is longing to get out. And that's the thing that drives this whole process. That's one, I don't want to call it apologetic, but it's definitely a way that tries to move away from the fact that this is an Im- seemingly immoral behavior. Rashi, on the other hand, has no problem with accepting the fact that this is quite, if not an immoral, at least a very uncomfortable behavior. And he says as follows. Scripture speaking, only in view of male's evil inclination, meaning that the only reason the Torah allowed this, it was to appease the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination. That if Hashem did not allow him to marry her, albeit with certain restrictions, he would have married her anyway, be Yisur. But, but the Torah comes and says and warns that if you marry her, so the way that the, the parasha breaks up is the first law is about this, this woman. The second law is about a man who has two wives, one who he loves and one who he hates. And he's not allowed to preference the older children, uh, so the, the younger children of his loved wife over the despised children of his despised wife. And then it goes into the concept of a rebellious son. So those are the first three, let's say, stories or halachas that come up in the parasha. So Rashi says they're all interconnected. If you marry her, he will end up, he will hate her. Because the Torah writes immediately afterwards, if a man has two wives, one beloved, one other hated. And ultimately he will beget a refractory rebellious son by her. So that's the third parasha. For this reason, the sections put these in juxtaposition. So as Rashi is saying, firstly, is that if you marry this woman on the, on the battlefield, you're going to land up have, hating her, and then you're going to have a child through her who's going to become a rebellious child because he grew up in a house where his father hated his mother. Okay, that's what Rashi says. But I want to focus on the beginning of Rashi, where he comes and says, the scripture is speaking of to man's evil inclination, that if the Torah did not allow him to marry this woman, did not allow him to take this woman on the battlefield, he would have taken her anyway. So according to Rashi, it's, it, that it is only allowed because the Torah realized that the man would do it anyway. So a couple of problems with that. Number one, um, how, how do we, we, we're trying to say that the Torah is clearly saying that this is not a desirable behavior. But nevertheless, we're going to allow it because uh, people aren't going to listen. So I'm not sure in other areas of Torah that you see that often coming and saying that, well, you know, we've got to allow people to eat pork because people don't eat pork anyway. So we might as well make it allowable. And so because if we don't make it allowable, they'll eat it anyway. 
I mean, can you imagine the whole Torah falls apart if you use this logic? People don't have to keep Shabbos. Why? Because if you told them to keep Shabbos, they wouldn't keep it anyway. So no one has to keep Shabbat. So seemingly this, this kind of logic is, is very problematic. Unless you want to say that there's something unique about this halacha, that in this area, the Torah was allowing that, you know, that, um, that there was a certain dispensation over here, but not in other areas of Jewish law. But it's very difficult to understand because the way that the Torah, this Rashi is explaining it, is that the, the, the experience of um, battle apparently uh, provokes within the individual, within the soldier, a lust, a carnal lust for this woman that the Torah feels he is incapable of quelling. And therefore the Torah needs to allow it, albeit with restriction. So it's not that uh, the Torah is saying it is fine, no problem. The Torah is saying, okay, if you want to, then you have to take it for a month, you have to shave her hair, you have to do all these things. So with a lot of uh, restrictions, but nevertheless was allowing it. Now why on earth did the Torah do that? So Rashi says the reason because it is too compelling a force to be able to resist. So what, the, what, what Rashi is, is, is hinting to you over here, and I say it's probably stronger than even hinting, is the fact that the Torah accepts that some of the ideals of the Torah are not in the grasp of man, or it's not in the grasp of many men to be able to overcome. The power of uh, the pull towards the sin is way too strong to expect the average person to be able to resist it. So on the one hand, it's interesting because the Torah, if it says it here, it means that every other area, so when it comes to pork and Shabbos and all other laws, in all other areas, the Torah does expect you to be able to resist it. It's only in this particular, in this particular case that the Torah acknowledges that it's too difficult to resist. But what's, what's key over here, and, and I think this is a, a point that is, is, what would happen if, uh, let's say, I was the, uh, I was the uh, rabbi of the army, and someone comes over to me and says, Rabbi, I saw this beautiful woman in captivity and I really want, I want her for a wife. Can I have her? So what would the halacha be? So the interesting thing is that if you're the kind of person who can ask the halachic shala, you're no longer in the category of somebody who can res- can't resist their desires. The, the only the t- person who, who won't ask the question because he is so overcome with desire, he is the one to, for whom this law is permissible. But as soon as an individual is able to resist a bit, that they can ask the question, is this permissible or not? So then he he's no longer falls into the category of someone who this, um, this, uh, this law applies to. I'll give you another example, something quite similar with regards to Pinchas. So at the end of Parashat Balak, we read about uh, um, Zimri, who's a, sh- a prince from the tribe of Shimon, having an illicit relationship with a woman named Cosby from the tribe of Moab. And Pinchas picks up a, a spear and kills the two of them. And uh, there's a whole big kafafa at the beginning of Pasha Pinchas. Was he right to do so? Was he not? Now, what's the law? So the Talmud comes and says that the law is that a Kanai, that somebody who is a zealot, if he does an act like this out of his zealotry, um, we do not hold him accountable. Meaning as follows, that if in the, in the passion, of an absolute passion and fire to stand up for that which is moral in your eyes, you do something even as, excuse me, even as harsh as murder, 
we will overlook it because it is a, a, a crime of absolute passion. Now we're Pinchas to go and ask the question, I'm wondering, can I kill these two people who are committing these terrible sins? The halacha would be, no, you cannot. Because it is only allowed for a zealot. And a zealot is an individual who doesn't ask questions. So it's one of those areas <coughs> where the more um, a person is capable of, of asking the questions, the less the likelihood is that the, the, the halacha will apply to them. But if we get back to our original topic, which is this concept of the spirit of the law, is what's the ideal? What does the Torah want us to do? Does the Torah want um, the soldier to marry the woman on the battlefield? And the answer is clearly not. Is that the Torah acknowledges that some people, the, the, the pull is too strong, but the ideal is definitely not to do such a thing. So you have these two sort of uh, parallel systems. One, what is legal? And two, that which is moral. Not everything legal is moral. So this is a case where clearly it is something that is non-desirable from the Torah's point of view, but yet perfectly legal. And it's that area that we're going to talk about the concept of the spirit of the law. The spirit of the law will come and say that even if things are permissible, doesn't mean that they're good. And just because the Torah says that it is something that you can do, does not mean it's something that you should do. And it is going to infiltrate almost every aspect of Jewish life. That it's going to be this whole concept of what is permissible as opposed to what is preferable. So I'll give a, a, a few examples of this. And we're going to talk a little bit about the psychology behind it as well. So in, um, in Pasha Mishpatim, which is the first Pasha that comes after the, after the giving of the Torah, learn about the laws of slavery. And it's if you have a slave and how long you can work a slave. It's talking specifically about a Jewish slave, but it goes on to non-Jewish slaves as well. Now, abolition exists in the entire Western world, at least uh, um, there's no formalized slavery. There's definitely, unfortunately, slavery that exists throughout the world. But formalized slavery is, is very rare in the, West, in the, in the world and uh, non-existent in the West. But in the Torah world, how, does, how do we view slavery? Do we view slavery as something that is a good thing, a permissible, okay thing? It's, neither mor it's morally neutral. Do you think that it is something that is a moral evil? So you read it over there in Pasha Mishpatim, and it sort of talks about it's in quite a morally neutral status. If you have a slave, so you've got to, if you've only got, uh, you've got to take care of them. If you've only got one pillow, you've got to give your slave your pillow. You're not allowed to abuse them. You're not allowed, if, you, if you injure them, they go free. And it talks about them in very um, limited terms in a sense that you can't treat a slave like absolute possession. Um, but you can definitely have a slave. There's no problem. But this week's parasha, there's a, there's a fascinating, there are two laws which are similar, but almost completely uh, opposite. Similar in a sense that um, it has to do with returning lost objects. So the, the, the mitzvah of, uh, you know, if you find an object that belongs to someone, so the Torah in this week's parasha says you should take it and keep it with you until the person comes looking for it. You should keep it forever. What about a lost slave? So somebody has a slave and the slave runs away. And now it comes into your property. So what should you do with it? So says the Pasha, You shall not turn the slave back over to his master. He has fled to you from his master. So it's like, hold on a second. Why is this not a typical case of uh, returning a lost object to its owner? I mean, if, if the slave is viewed as property, the property has gone AWOL. You know, return the lost object. So he said, no, you don't. You don't return it. Now, 
What slave are we talking about? Is it a Jewish slave, a non-Jewish slave? Look at the way Rashi understands this. Understand this. Uh, it means the servant of Edith. It implies that even a Canaanite slave, even a non-Jewish slave that belongs to an Israelite who fled from outside the land. Meaning that even if you have a non-Jewish slave who runs to me and his owner was a Jew and he fled to you, you are not allowed to return him to his master. So what is that telling us about the concept of slavery? That slavery is something that is permissible but not desirable. It is this idea that yes, there are times where we have slavery, but it's not something that we should be looking at as an ideal state. It is something that should be ideally eradicated, as as it has been with the passage of time. So if we were in, you know, if we were living in halachic, um, um, if the state of Israel became a halachic state, would we then say, well, if you want to have a slave, it's perfectly within the realm of halacha to have a slave. So you can have a slave. Or do we say no? There's abolition. So halacha, you say absolutely there's abolition. So how, if there was abolition, if the Torah thought that slavery was immoral, why did the Torah never come from the outset and say slavery is immoral? The answer is because that the Torah is speaking to the fact that in a society at a particular point in time, you cannot command them to do something that is beyond the realm of the average individual. And this goes throughout uh, halakha, that things that today are moral you know, they are morally obvious in throughout history were not so obviously mo- morally obvious. They, in fact, could be the opposite. So slavery is, is, is morally obvious today, but a thousand years ago, clearly it wasn't. Um, the status of women in the world, the status of the women in the ancient world and up until modernity were second-class citizens. And nowadays, there's no way in the world, in, the, in the, let's say in the Western world, and definitely in the majority of the Torah world, that would say that women are second-class citizens. Women are equal. They might have different roles, but there's, they, they are considered equivalent in the eyes of Hashem. And there's no, a man is not preferable to a woman. And the birth of a son and the birth of a daughter should be you know, an absolute uh, non-event as far as preference goes, because they have equal value in the eyes of Hashem. But understanding that saying such a thing 500 years ago was very difficult to digest, as, as much as it pays me to think, things like racism. So racism, uh, it, it wasn't even called racism. It, it is interesting, there's, um, I just have to think which author I read recently. He said that, um, I think it might be Douglas Murray, where he said that the, the concept, no, no, it was um, Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell is an African-American professor. He's a conservative professor, but he talked about the, talks about the fact that the concept of racism came about when, um, when, um, with the abolition of slavery. Because up until then, slavery wasn't race-based. Slaves were slaves. White people would enslave white people. Black people enslave black people. Everyone, black people enslave white and white enslave black. It, it had to do with power. Who was in charge slaved he, the one who wasn't in charge. But once you emancipated people and said that there's no legalized slavery, so how was, you know, how were we to determine who, who's more important and who's less important? So that's when racism came along it was, it's an interesting idea uh, develop a little bit more but the idea being is that once upon a time to to talk about another uh, a color or or, or or faith in a disparaging ter- term in a way that said that these uh, that these people were less than you was was ubiquitous everyone accepted that nowadays 
I'd like to think that the entire Jewish world has accepted the fact that we are not that racism is not acceptable. So what shifted is that at a certain point in time, the idea of living a life without slavery, where every culture in the world had slaves, to come and say that no slaves, that, that just was not possible. And so the Torah had to say, okay, we'll give slaves because people can't live without them. However, we're going to circumscribe it. There's certain laws that the laws of slavery for us are going to be different to the laws of slavery in the, in, the, in the broader society. And the same with every other area of what we will consider moral ills today that were morally accepted uh, generations ago. The fact that the Torah sought that these were ways that the halachic system would have to evolve over time. So I'd like to give you another few examples just sort of to drive home this idea that the halakha as we live it is, and is consistently evolving. And what we do today is, you know, to try to keep the whole Shulchan Aruch is not the end of the story, but really the beginning. So both the, the, you know, the other sources that we're going to be using are from the Ramban. So one comes in the Pashat Vayikra, no Pashat Vayikra, Pashat Kedoshim Sefer Vayikra. It says the Lord spoke to Moshe. should speak to entire community of Israel and say to them, "You shall be holy, for I am the Lord. For I, the Lord your God, am holy." So, what does it mean to be holy? So, throughout the, we see the concept of kedusha of, of holiness exists throughout the Torah, but here is the first time that we really see it that you must be holy. So, how does one be holy? So, the Ramban, and this is possibly the most famous Ramban in the entire Chumash, and he explains as follows. In my opinion, holiness does not refer only to the restraint from acts of immorality, what we would call halacha. Restraining from acts of immorality is halacha, but rather the self-control. But rather the self-control, meaning as follows: the Torah has admonished us against immorality and forbidden foods, but permitted intimacy. First, sorry, immorality and forbidden foods, but has permitted intimacy between man and his wife, and the eating of meat and wine. So there are things that are prohibited. So an adulterous affair is prohibited. Pork is prohibited. But intimacy between a husband and wife is permissible as in eating good food. So it says, If so, a lustful individual could consider this to be permission to be passionately addicted to all forms of licentiousness, alcoholism and gluttony, as well as to feel free to speak of all forms of profanity. Why? Because these matters have not been expressly mentioned in the Torah. The individual therefore will become a naval barishuta Torah, which literally means a disgusting yet ironically halachic person. So if I eat, you know, if there's if I if I have three, you know, three servings of ice cream and I I I I, I burp at the table and I pick my nose and I, and, I, and I speak in vulgarities. So technically, and, and you say, geez, that's disgusting. So say, tell me one halacha that I've transgressed. I made blessings before I ate everything. I did nitilat yadayin. I'm going to bench. Uh, tell me what I did that's prohibited. So, so says the Ramban, that's what it means to be kadosh. Therefore, after Hashem listed all the matters which he prohibited altogether. I, once, once the Torah has already said to us, you can do this and you can't do that. The explicit prohibitions and mitzvahs. The Torah followed them up by a general command that we practice moderation even in matters which are permitted. Restraint. The ability to be a mensch is not going to be in keeping halacha. It's going to be going beyond the halacha. 
such as using wine in small amounts. Similarly, he should keep himself away from vulgarities in his only daily activity, even though we've not been admonished against in the Torah. Likewise, he should guard his mouth and tongue from being defiled from excessive food and lewd talk, and should control himself in this respect until he reaches complete self-restraint. This is, it, is with this refer, it is with reference to these and similar matters that this general commandment to be holy is concerned. So you see explicitly in the Ramban that the Torah and Halacha is not the goal but rather the starting point. That we need to be able to look at, okay, now that I'm keeping 100% kosher, how do I eat? Should I have another helping of dessert? What would a Kadosh person be? Should I tell that joke that is a little bit off color? What would a Kadosh person be? Again, you are not transgressing any prohibitions. It is not the letter of the law. It's the spirit of the law. Hashem wants us to be Kadosh. Hashem wants us to be holy. And to be holy means go and be on the letter of the law. The next place where the Ramban says, he says almost the identical thing, but in a completely different context. So this is in Parshat Emor, where he's talking about Yom Kippur, but he's gonna, Ramban is going to expand this to the entire uh, festive, uh, uh, festive calendar. So the Pasuk says, So speak to the children of Israel and say, On the seventh month, that's uh, Tishrei, And the first day, sorry, Rosh Hashanah, should be for you a Shabbaton. Zichron Trua Mikra Kodesh. A remembrance of the Shofar Blasts and a, and a holy commemorated occasion. So it should be for you a Shabbaton. So we are familiar with the term Shabbat. Shabbat uh, we, we see all over the time. Often we see Shabbat Shabbaton. But the word Shabbaton is translated over here as a complete rest. But what is Shuyelechem Shabbat as opposed to Shabbaton? So look how the Ramban understands it. It appears to me that the meaning of this interpretation of the phrase Shabbaton is that we are commanded in Yom Tov to rest from those activities that technically do not qualify as Malacha. Meaning, you have to refrain and rest from the things that halachically are permissible. You can do them. There is nothing halachically wrong with doing them, but you still refrain from them. We should not be disturbed all day. So he's giving examples now. To be disturbed all day, to measure our grain, to weigh our fruit and possessions, to fill our vessels with wine, to move our wares, and to even and even building stones from house to house and place to place. And if located in a water city, load up our donkeys and even wine, grapes, figs, and all packages could indeed be delivered on Yontif. And the marketplace would be filled with ongoing commerce, and the shops would be open, and money changes tables strewn with coins, and the workers would arise for their duties and establish their daily ways like the rest of the week, and so on. Every of those elements we're talking about is halachically permissible on Shabbat. Using money. So going shopping on Shabbat. Why can you, can you go shopping on Shabbat? Everyone says, no, you can't go shopping on Shabbat. Why? Oh, it's because it's uh, Shabbat. Halachically, it's permissible. From a Torah point of view, it's completely permissible. Handling money on Shabbat is a rabbinic prohibition. Um, doing business on Shabbat is a rabbinic prohibition. Moving furniture on Shabbat in the house is perhaps a rabbinic prohibition. And all these rabbinic prohibitions, says the Ramban, that's what it means, Shabbaton, to rest from things that are permissible. These and similar activities, whether on Yom Tov or Erev Shabbat itself, all these activities do not technically constitute Melacha. Therefore, the Torah commands us, Shabbaton, that these should be days of rest and cessation of work and not days of labor and toil. And this is a good and beautiful interpretation. So what he's saying is that 
Shabbat is not about not doing malacha. That's definitely the starting point. But you cannot build an atmosphere of Shabbat um, just by refraining from malacha. For example, if a person sleeps all 24 or 5 hours of Shabbat, so they definitely did not transgress Shabbat, they did not break Shabbat, they haven't done any malacha, but they have completely missed the spirit of Shabbat. So, you've got two articles. You've got um, a time switch that is for your hot plate, so that you can have hot food in, the, in lunch. And you've got your TV on a time switch, so that you can watch the footy on a Shabbat afternoon. Now, technically, they're operating on the exact same mechanisms. I'm setting it up before Shabbat. It's automatically going to turn the electric circuit on, and it's going to make the electric appliance operate. And then after a period of time, it will switch it off. They operate on the identical systems. But heating food for Shabbat is to enhance my Shabbat experience. And having the TV on is just to make Shabbat like every other day of the week. And it's going to, if anything, it's going to detract from Shabbat. So says the Ramban, that's what it means, a Shabbaton. That the whole concept of a Shabbaton is very much in the idea of going beyond the letter of the law. So what I've tried to share with you this evening is three different cases where we see the ideal of Judaism is not to keep halakha. Keeping halakha is just a, a, a beginning point. But then there's the spirit of halakha. Now the spirit of halakha, is, reality is, it is always going to be rabbinic because things are going to change over the process of time. The way that uh, something that is considered morally acceptable in one generation may be morally reprehensible in another. Something that is considered completely out there. So I'll give you an example in, um, in the laws of law tilbash. So law tilbash is that a man's also this week's pastor that a man can't wear women's clothing and a woman can't wear men's clothing or, or do men's to women's activities. So once upon a time, it, these, these roles were very, very clear that certain things were very male-oriented and certain things were very female-oriented. But now, over, you know, in the 21st century, there's a lot of crossover. So for example, dyeing hair. So dyeing hair was always something that was historically something that women do, did. Men didn't dye hair. But nowadays, the market for dyeing hair for men is, I don't know if it's equal to that of women, but it's definitely very, very popular. So is dyeing hair for men today the same as it was? The big question. Laser hair removal. Another area where it was clear, historically, you know, removing hair um, was, was a female thing, not a male thing. And that, but times have changed. And so a lot of these sort of things evolve. And they move into the areas of should they be done or should they not be done? Because halakhically they are all permissible. Assuming that they are all permissible. And that is the idea of the spirit. And uh, to get to the core of what the spirit of any particular lacha is, is you need guidance from, um, from people who are, you know, have much broader shoulders than we do. Because so often our own personal agendas drive what we believe the spirit is. So I suppose is, uh, we could look at it, the halacha, so that which Hashem demands, and the spirit is that which Hashem wants. And to try and understand and ascertain that which Hashem wants um, is very difficult for us because it's not clear whether it's what we want Hashem to want or it's what indeed Hashem wants. And therefore, you know, that's where you have rabbinic, one has to consult and get um, advice on that particular issue. Anyway, so I hope that made a lot of sense to you, this, that the halachic system is a constantly evolving um, system. And morally and halachically, we will be in a very different place in uh, 10, 20, 50 years' time than we are today, because that's how the system was set up, to be moral people 
that uh, go beyond the letter of the law. All right. So thank you, everybody. If anyone has any questions, by all means, please feel free to unmute yourselves. Um, give you a couple of secs.